KOSU is a service of Oklahoma State University, and podcasts are made possible through the financial support of KOSU listeners. If you're a donor, thank you. And if not, go to KOSU.org and make your donation there. Our radio service is only possible thanks to the generosity of listeners like yourself. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill. And sitting in this week for Ryan Kiesel is ACLU Oklahoma Director of Policy and Advocacy, Nicole McAfee. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So Governor Stitt is pushing for a replacement for higher education chairman Glenn Johnson. The governor and his secretary of education are lobbying regents to oust him, but many say they're pleased with Johnson's leadership. Neva, why is Stitt pushing for Johnson's removal? I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I think this is something that, I mean, the governor has taken the position, look, I'm the new guy, and we need to take a a wholesale look at uh, all of state government, the agencies, everything, get new sets of eyes, as he, as he uh, oftentimes refers to it, uh, in, in these various places. But in this instance, I think uh, it, it looks like he almost hit a brick wall. I mean, you have the, the, the chair of the uh, uh, regents uh, basically saying we're very pleased with the chancellor. Um, there seems to be uh, no indication, uh, at least publicly at this point, that there are regents that are suggesting that it's time for, uh, you know, a change and uh, uh, Chancellor Johnson. So the bottom line to this is it's the regents that make the hire. It's their decision, not the governor's. So the governor uh, obviously can be the, the key player as these regents move off of uh, their uh, uh, their role on the uh, uh, the regents in terms of uh, being appointed. Mm-hmm. I mean that that but that's a long process, and I think what we what we see here now is will there be this kind of engagement and kind of back and forth combativeness potentially that comes uh, into the legislative session when they start talking about appropriating money to the uh, higher ed folks. Nicole. Yeah, so I think it's it's been really interesting in, in talking about legislative appropriation to higher ed. Um, has been sort of the the bonus piece of this conversation. I think that um, as Stitt has pushed back, so many folks have talked about um, about Johnson's leadership simply under some of the most trying possible conditions. Um, and so I think it's been a real opening to talk about how much higher ed has suffered um, due to budget cuts and, and what he's been able to do um, with that like 26% cut since 2008 and the importance of his leadership there. So I, I don't know if, if Stitt expected that as a byproduct of the conversation, but I, I certainly think it's an important one um, as we look towards what the priorities of next session are going to be. And I think the other the other aspect of this is the political dimension. I mean, uh, Glenn Johnson, a high-profile uh, Democrat, uh, served as Speaker of the House, uh, son of a congressman, someone who's be, he's been a college president at Southeastern prior to becoming the chancellor, someone who has a long pedigree and someone who has a lot of friends, clearly, you know, through those years. In, in public service. And it, it, even back into the Fallon administration in those years, we heard lawmakers, particularly Republicans, oftentimes saying this is this is this is a position where there needs to be a change. But there were never the votes and there was never the support. And I think we're seeing from the comments that are being made about the focus by the by the regents being on a vice chancellor for finance and budget as opposed to a chancellor, and making the point that I think in, in some of the comments 
comments this week that we will look for a a succession plan uh, to move forward. So I think they I think they have a plan. It doesn't necessarily coincide or meet with the governor's uh, idea of what he wants to see. And we'll just see whether this becomes a, a battle in the uh, a kind of a battle back and forth on the on the public side, or whether they'll try to uh, uh, try to deal with this more behind closed doors in advance of the legislative session, which I believe will be a key part of this. And Nicole, could lawmakers come in and basically make a same law like they did last year with the other heads of agencies to where he could, or is there something about, I think there's something I remember reading that he doesn't have complete control over higher education because it's like written in the constitution or something like right. that, right? I believe that's right, yeah. as, as I recall. Yeah, so it would be very difficult for anything like that to get passed. Right, right. I think that, I, I don't think that's a, a real option here. Um, and I, I kind of wonder what's, you know, Stitt's end game is in this. Is it really just a push for that kind of broader control? Um, I think it's interesting that in sort of these conversations, he hasn't offered an, a real idea of who his ideal candidate mm-hmm. is there um, in a way that maybe would have moved some folks who, who seem really unmoved at this and point. And I think the other question is, will there be, uh, will there be as you say, a, agenda points or things that the governor and his folks decide to push for uh, in terms of how higher ed is reconstructed or, you know, refashioned? I mean, everyone knows in terms of the dollars being expended uh, in many instances where enrollment's down, we have to deal with that uh, in, a, in a very calculated fashion. Quick Trips, manager of public and government affairs, is blaming criminal justice reform on an increase in property crimes. Mike Thornbrew says his company has seen a 300% increase in thefts and says it's because of state question 780 to raise the property value for a felony from $500 to $1,000. Nicole, what do you think of these comments? Um, so it was interesting. I was actually in attendance at that meeting and saw them happen live. Um, and about 40 minutes of this hour and a half agenda was spent just on his comments around Quick Trip. Um, I think it's important context that the, the body he was addressing, their primary mission is to craft a felony reclassification plan that reduces incarceration in Oklahoma. So certainly this focus on potentially lowering the felony threshold again is not quite going to get us where we want to go. Um, I think I think it was interesting that none of that was steeped in data. So he gave these numbers, but he didn't sort of present any evidence to suggest that, that there was data to back those claims up. I know organizations like Oklahoma Policy Institute have actually presented alternative data that right. suggests felony theft is down overall. Um, so this large increase from quick trip seems um, sort of very different from the the realm of possibility from what we're seeing in the data here in Oklahoma. Neva. Well, and I think it was interesting, some of the comments. It, it seemed that uh, from the quick trip perspective and Mike Thornbrew representing them uh, at that meeting, that it was more of a frustration level of, you know, trying to make the case that every every uh, everything doesn't fit every size and, you know, making making really his focus on the habitual criminals and the frustration that they're having with the uh, with the difference between the $500 and $1,000 thresholds. But even as uh, I think one of the public Public defender said, uh, "Look, most of the most of the items you have in your in your stores don't rise to that level. So this really doesn't, you know, really doesn't make a very strong argument. So I think I think that we may have seen the private sector in this particular uh, uh, business feel compelled to kind of come express their concerns and try to try to make a case. But a, as Nicole says, the data didn't seem to back it up and and make a very compelling argument for the folks that were trying to deliberate over this particular." 
question. Is it hard to weed out sometimes the, the businesses that might have a little bit of an agenda sometimes uh, rather than actually trying to make some kind of policy changes? Uh, I mean, I think it's important to note that um, he was there at the invitation of District Attorney Steve Kunzweiler from Tulsa County, and the district attorneys have been longtime vocal opponents yeah. of State Question 780 and oftentimes in legislation have tried to undo that work. Um, but but I think that, that that agenda piece is important in the broader conversation because Oklahoma was one of the first states to raise its its felony theft threshold back in 2001 um, mm-hmm. from $50 to $500. <laughs> um, and it, it kicked off a whole round of other states doing the same. And even as states have continued to raise the, the threshold, um, we've only seen... We've only seen theft go down, um, that crime rate go down overall across the country. Um, And so I think that scare tactics are common as we really dig into criminal justice reform conversations, but that we can't let that stop us. And we also can't let us let us, you know, focus on something besides the fact that that this is kind of district attorneys trying to poke at the will of the voters um, and and push us backwards. Which they were doing a lot in the past legislative sessions. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when in in this particular instance with this particular business, I mean, operating in 11 other states, um, you know, one of the things that I think, again, didn't reflect well in the in the uh, case trying to be presented was the fact that that, uh, again, one of the public defenders said, look, all of these states that you're talking about, you do business with other than Oklahoma also have these higher limits on the on the on the felony. Uh, so um, so, why is it just so so again, I think trying to trying to throw some statistics out there. And I think uh, Chris Steele is you mentioned in, the, in attending the meeting, uh, you made the point that look these these uh, these things fluctuate. I mean, we can look at data one year to the next to the next and see you know we may see it go up and down, we may see a downturn, we may see an uptick. So you know, I think it's I think all sides come with a, some level of uh, frustration to the to, to the table on this because they're all trying to reach a consensus, but they they come from very differing points of view, and it is a a very uh, tall order. Order to try to try to reason through this and come up with uh, some things that are workable for the people in Oklahoma. The Cherokee Nation is pointing to a 200-year-old treaty and calling for a delegation in Congress. New Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. says the tribe should have non-voting representation comparable with Washington, D.C. or U.S. territories like Puerto Rico and Guam. Neva, is this feasible? I don't know. And I think uh, Congressman Cole was one of the uh, one of the members in the delegation that did publicly uh, uh, address this. And he basically said, look, we don't know. I mean, we're talking about uh, we're talking about uh, treaties that are 175 years old. We just don't know. There are more questions probably than answers right now but I think uh, what we what we saw from uh, 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 principal chief Hoskins is is basically uh, the uh, kind of the the effort to start this what was described as a long process and I think it will be because clearly there are many legal issues uh, the the Congress would have to weigh on weigh in on this at some point the house and determine uh, what they uh, what they view uh, as uh, as the possibilities of whether or not they would recognize uh, 
recognize a, a, a member from uh, from this particular tribe. So I think it opens up a big Pandora's box in some measure, and we'll just have to see. I mean, what uh, what ensues and how quickly it does. I thought it was interesting that uh, Second District Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen, who is a uh, Cherokee citizen, uh, has not, uh, to my knowledge, at least at this point, I've not seen that he's uh, indicated any position one way or the other. And obviously, from I think uh, uh, not only Oklahoma but uh, the delegation standpoint and the House of Representatives, they would be very interested in knowing what his position will be. And Nicole, it's an interesting position because you've got territories. Obviously, those are those are owned by the by the United States and, and the District of Columbia. But these are sovereign nations having a position in Congress. What do you think about that idea? Um, I mean, I think at the end of the day that the tribes have had treaties ignored again and again and again. And I think um, newly elected um, Chief Hoskin is is making a point here. This is right. one of his very first acts was to push this forward. Um, and I think it says, listen, I'm not going to allow you to continue to disrespect these treaties. And I think it's important to think of the context of this political moment, too, that the Supreme Court has an outstanding case um, based in the Muscogee Creek the Nation. Yeah, the Murphy right. case that is really going to set a tone on on sovereignty and tribal rights. And I think that that's only going to become a bigger part of the conversation going forward. Um, so I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what the next steps are with this. I think that, that Kim Teehee has done a lot of work in the state of Oklahoma for the Cherokee Nation, as well as at a federal level, um, and that having her voice there to represent the Cherokee Nation, but also to really open that door for other tribes to claim their representatives at a federal level um, would be a pretty incredible step. And even as Nicole was mentioned, Hos- Hoskins really come out of the the gate just running with with uh, p- pay raises, talking <laughs> right, about the right. con- uh, congressional uh, delegation. Uh, he's re- and of course he's got to deal with the, the gaming compacts as well. So he's got a lot of things on his plate, and he's just really hitting the ground running. He is clearly, and I mean, in reaffirming what he says, reaffirming these two treaties um, uh, that were renegotiated by you know by his ancestors uh, that uh, uh, that are reflected in their constitution. I mean, he's making, you know, he's trying to make his case that that there are legal legal and procedural uh, issues that have to be addressed. And what the pathway to get there is, I think, is is what everyone's going to have to come to the table and try to work out. A survey of school districts finds nearly 600 vacancies for teacher positions. The Oklahoma State School Board Association says last year the vacancies numbered fewer than 500. This comes despite an increase in education spending and teacher raises. Nicole, what do you think of this survey? I mean, I think it's important to think that while we have increased teacher pay, we are still kind of far below the threshold of most other states, and we still, in our region, are last in per-pupil spending. Um, So when I think about the long time it takes to sort of make a, a career path something that folks are, are really looking at and is enticing to them, um, that we've lost a lot of talent already. We know that for a fact. Um, and that it's going to take a while and continued investment to recruit new talent um, to come teach in Oklahoma schools. Right. And even, even though we've got emergency ter- certified teachers, for someone to go through college and actually get a teaching degree it takes a while to, to get there. It does. But, you know, when you look at these studies, sometimes the snapshot takeaway is not always when you get into the details. And, and I thought the important point that I read was that the district leaders, when they described in, in, in this uh, survey that uh, teacher, the teacher hiring environment uh, and what it was, it had dropped to 38% as being, you know, a negative as opposed to just a few years ago, it was at 75%. So I think the the climate and the environment in public education is much better. And when they talk about those 600 um, 
uh, 600 positions, 300 of those were new positions, newly created positions that were clearly the result of budgets being increased, uh, more dollars, you know, to be able to uh, uh, go into the districts and to hire teachers and to uh, and give the teacher raises that they've uh, been able to uh, make in the in the last couple of years. So I think when you when you look at kind of this broader picture, I mean, it has to be a little more positive than negative. And sometimes I think there's this kind of upshot of just the takeaway still is that you know that every we're at the bottom and and nothing really is improving. But I think it's slow and incremental and 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 clearly uh, by their by many of the um, uh, accounts of the leadership, you know, state school board association and other folks. I mean, talking about the fact that we're lowering classroom size, we're getting more you know dollars into the classroom. No one said it was an overnight fix, but clearly the money that is being directed, I think the public is hopeful that it's going to result in in uh, seeing some real significant changes uh, for the positive side in uh, education in Oklahoma. One big concern in the uh, survey was that uh, there's gonna, there could be a mass retirement very soon in the next couple of years. How concerned should people be about this? I, I think that there's real concern there, and I think that that conversation is an important one to have in the context of the, the cuts to higher education funding that we've talked about. So we, we know that because we've cut the higher ed, ed budget, um, that tuition and fees have gone up, that Oklahoma is second in the nation, I believe, in the number of folks who have delinquent student loan debts, um, that when it costs that much to get a college education here in Oklahoma, um, that folks are going to look for job and career pathways that are going to give them a return on that investment. Um, and I think that that makes uh, a degree in education um, a much harder sell in a lot of cases. And so I think as we think about sort of this mass retirement and, and the number of educators in the state of Oklahoma who are nearing that age, that we really have to think about how we spend in higher education and how we make uh, a degree and certification something that's enticing to young Oklahomans. And I think the flip side on the on the mass retirement is the fact that we are seeing a trend where oftentimes uh, teachers retire, they may take a, a year off, maybe not take a year off, and they come back in, you know, uh, they come back into the system. So there is more hiring of retired teachers, uh, some in, in what would be considered part-time adjunct teaching positions or filling, you know, filling some of their uh, uh, needs in, in, the, in the classroom that way. So I think that will that the need based on based on retirements or whatever the 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 uh, environment is, they will find some creative ways to bring qualified people that can really um, kind of up the instructional. Uh, value in the classroom across the state of Oklahoma. And I believe lawmakers recently fixed that, where they said that teachers can now uh, get return right back to school once they've right. retired. So the lawmakers are also kind of thinking about that possibility. If you'd retire, maybe you don't necessarily leave the education profession. So... The Oklahoma County Jail Trust is removing the sheriff from daily operations at the jail. The board voted 6-2 to two to instead start looking for an administrator to do the job. Neva, will this help fix the problems at the facility? Well, I think the the hope is that it will certainly uh, help fix that. And I think it, it's, not a unique, it's not a unique setup. There are at least six other 
uh, jails in the state of Oklahoma that have uh, an administrator as opposed to the sheriff uh, running the jail. And I think that's really what we're looking at is the sheriff providing the law enforcement as as required by the, the description of the job versus running the jail. And we've seen over and over and over again this notion that somehow you can't separate those, that the sheriff making his point when he voted against this, the the, the uh, uh, the idea of a jail administrator saying that there would be chaos and no one would understand where the separation and what the duties were, I think is a bogus argument. I mean, what they need is someone to come in and run and manage and fix the problems in the jail, the systemic problems, some of which are just facility issues. They're not all, you know, they're not all uh, in terms of just, uh, you know, uh, not only being able to uh, elevate the staff and train them better and do what they need to, but provide an environment that doesn't continue to give us a black and uh, cause problems with us, with the Department of Justice and all the other things that we've seen through the years uh, where we've just not met the standards. So I think it's a good move. I hope that on September 9th when they roll out the job description that they're creating that they'll move very aggressively in the in the coming weeks uh, to find the, the right person that fits the bill and give them, uh, you know, give them the reign and, and let's see what can happen with, uh, with this kind of change in the mindset of how to uh, fix the Oklahoma County jail. Nicole. Yeah, so I think um, this this isn't a decision that was made quickly or lightly, but I think it was one that was made urgently. Um, so we elect sheriffs in Oklahoma, and we oftentimes elect folks for their skills in law enforcement. But what we need at the jail is someone who has skills in management. Um, because sheriffs come in and then they feel the need to um, to defend policies, to defend practices. Um, but we need someone to really look at the jail in terms of current policy versus reality versus best practices. And I think that that needs to be someone with a real background in management of mental health as well. We know that the Oklahoma County Jail is our largest mental health provider in the Oklahoma City area, and that we really have to take that into consideration as we look at the qualifications and as we look at this job description. I hope it reflects that. But I think that that the real important part here is that the jail trust chose not to privatize the jail, which I know was a sort of piece of contentious debate for quite a while. And I think that that's critical, too. Um, it's a lot harder to to fire a private company who's running the jail um, than it is a single administrator. And I think that this kind of balances the needs and I hope really opens the conversation about what the reality of practices are in the jail in a way that looks to best practices to decrease that population. We know that there are about 1,600 folks in the Oklahoma County Jail on any given day at this moment. About 80% of them are there pre-trial, mm-hmm. um, which is 10% higher than the average across the state of Oklahoma and across the country. And so I think that there's obviously room for practices to move folks out of the facility a lot faster and more efficiently. And I really hope that the conversation around hiring centers on that. One of the for, uh, complaints that Sheriff Taylor made also was that this adds another level of bureaucracy. bureaucracy that uh, is there concern about that? Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I mean, again, it's the separation. I mean, he, as the sheriff of Oklahoma County, has a job to do with his deputies. I mean, in terms of providing security, serving warrants, uh, you know, just general operating law enforcement in the unincorporated uh, portions of Oklahoma County, which is a large area, as yeah. we all know, uh, and and those other prescribed duties by law. But those are specific things that he still, in his elected capacity as the sheriff, will have to do. What, what is extracted out of his uh, duties is running the jail. 
and and uh, and and I think that when we see when we see this separation start to take place, it will be interesting to see with the upcoming elections in 2020. Sheriffs are up for re-election. Uh, the uh, uh, Oklahoma County Sheriff has not indicated whether or not he'll run for re-election. But being antagonistic and not being very forthcoming and trying to uh, partner and work with uh, kind of this uh, this new era of how the Oklahoma County Jail is going to be run, I think will be problematic for everyone and. Hopefully, we'll see. Um, I think with the trust, they have a very sincere and very dedicated desire to, you know, to move forward on this and get some real results. With no one believing that it's going to, again, as we always say, be done overnight. I mean, we we have a big mess, but there are some there are some changes that can be made fairly quickly that will dramatically shift just the composition of how many you know how many folks are in that jail on a given day, as Nicole says, and what uh, what has to happen in terms of dealing with the mental health component, which I think all folks that have had any interaction or followed this uh, issue at all understand is one of the most significant pieces. Which is the purpose of the Oklahoma County Jail Trust in the first place, was to fix the jail. Right. And I think that I think that the sheriff is from the get-go decided that this is a bad idea and just really dug in on this. But I think in practice, it is actually going to make his life and his work much easier. I think of of things like um, problems around handing out menstrual products um, to folks who menstruate and come into the jail, Mm -hmm. that they've had an issue where they hand them out to any woman who's booked in the jail, regardless of whether or not they're going to menstruate while they're there. And then folks are using them to pad toilets or make life easier in a really uncomfortable situation. And as a result, the sheriff's then decided that folks need less and they've restricted those. Um, and and that's a decision that's, that's just one that's not rooted in efficiency or, or you know, medical knowledge <laughs> sometimes. And I think that there, there are things like that that when off his plate are going to make his ability to do real work um, and, and really focus on kind of a corrections attitude a lot easier. Well, and hopefully there will be strong leadership coming out of the sheriff as well as the new jail administrator that they can work together and understand the roles that they both will have and the people that work under them. I mean, work, you know, work in the roles that they have uh, can it can kind of get on the same plate quick, same you know, same uh, uh, version of how they're going to operate very quickly and not have this be just an antagonistic kind of uh, uh, setting like we've seen oftentimes in the past, even even as we've discussed this. Like you say, this has been a long, protracted conversation to get to the place where we are today. And now I think we can see some fairly rapid uh, um, movement as they, as they get this person in place, whether that's in the next few weeks or few months, we'll just have to see. Yeah. Nicole and Neva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.